Before there was Spartan King Leonidas and the Battle of Thermopylae, there was Gideon and the 300. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 50, Gideon and the 300, Part 2. After God trims Gideon's army to 300, Gideon is freaking out. I mean, he is freaking out. He's quite concerned and scared for his life. It never says that Gideon asked for another sign, but God alleviates Gideon's concerns when he tells him to go down to the Midian camp to be encouraged. He went down with Pura, his servant, whose name means foliage, and there they hide in the foliage, we can guess, and they must have really gotten close to the enemy camp, for they could clearly hear two men talking in the middle of the night. Judges 7.13 Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. Obviously, God had sent the fear of him ahead of Gideon. That aspect we've seen time and time again, the fear of God. God sent a terror into the enemy camp. Though they were numerous, they were terrified of Gideon, even calling it the sword of Gideon. Not sure why, since all he's done is tear down an idol and issued a call for an army, which may not even be public knowledge. I mean, this guy was terrified of Gideon for him to interpret the dream as such. How would he have known so much about Gideon, but only that God had spread news of Gideon ahead of him to terrify their enemies? Gideon was referred to as a loaf of barley, which is quite fitting since it was considered the poor man's harvest, barley. But what I really like is Gideon's response, spontaneous worship. It says, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, which is really crazy that they not only were given a dream, but the interpretation as well. It was here that it it said that Gideon worshipped. What a strange place to worship, hiding in the bush, in the foliage. I ask you, the listener, what does that mean to you? Have you ever done that, spontaneously worshipped from your heart? I can tell you that most any father or mother who wants their child does this when their child was born. It's in our DNA. To stand in awe and wonder at God's creation through you. Or what about when you saw a dream fulfilled or when you received that, that answered prayer you've been praying for? It was in complete wonder and with such an overwhelmed and grateful heart that Gideon was so overawed by God, it said he worshipped right there. And just from my personal experience, I believe it was one of those moments when his heart was so overawed by God, he just paused for a minute or so and cried. Overwhelmed by a God. Isn't that what it says? His kindness brings us to repentance. Gideon was overwhelmed by a God who would go to such lengths just to comfort him and confirm his faith in him. 
and he would burn the sacrifice, fill him with his spirit, make the fleece wet and then dry, and now give a terrifying dream of him to his enemies, the dream and the interpretation in his own hearing. Infused by the Spirit of God, Gideon pursues his end goal, the end of the Midianite oppression. Judges 7, 15. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the three hundred men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon finally is fired up. We have to believe the Spirit has overtaken him again. Or let's just say he's possessed by God. Interesting here that God doesn't just give him the strategy. He just does it. When Gideon worshipped, he entered that zone again. That sweet spot of the Spirit with heaven on earth, of heavenly possession by the Holy Spirit when God possesses a person, however temporarily to fulfill his purpose. All of Gideon's action until the pursuit are possessed by the Holy Spirit. So he separated his men into three companies and surrounded the Midianites. Each man was holding a torch, a shofar, and an empty pitcher. Judges 7.19 Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. So what's happening here? God has planned their sneak attack upon the heights between the watches of the lookouts so that they achieve total surprise above the valley where the Midianites are camped. They would be emerging from the darkness with horns and torches and the sound of broken pitchers. I've heard it stated that there would be a horn and torch for every thousand men, and if this is the case, the Midianites were awakened to the smashing of the pottery, torches of a supposed numerically superior army, and deafening shofars. This is where I can't help myself. If I was Gideon, or if I was MacGyver, I would have put some cool type of firepower, right? By putting oil in the pitcher in a jar, and wadded grasses in the same pitcher, and upon the breaking of the jar and the lighting of the grasses in the pitcher, Gideon would have predated the Molotov cocktail invented prior to World War II. We don't know for sure, but 300 fireballs exploding in the Midianite camp would have helped to turn them against each other. Next, the Lord deploys a new strategy. He turns enemies against each other. So far, we have seen sneak attacks, fear preceding armies, angelic armies, and hailstones and plagues used in war and weather and the elements and other means of warfare that God has used in battle. But this is one that is fairly new, turning the enemy against themselves. Judges 7.22 When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola, near Tabith. 
Could it be the Lord turned neighbor against neighbor, or did he turn nation against nation? Could it be that the Amalekites could no longer work with the Midianites instantly, so much so that a civil war breaks out against Israelites' oppressors, but Gideon's men couldn't help but be surprised when the nations below them tore at each other, killing each other in the valley of Armageddon? Judges 7.23 At this point, the other guys, all of the previous tribes that were separated from the army, were called back. Those that were sifted out earlier to have rejoined the army, and they pursue the Midianites into a very deep and exhausting pursuit to annihilate the Midianites. And it goes from the valley of Jezreel across Jordan into parts of Arabia. Now the account gets interesting because we start to see interesting behavior by Gideon. Take note earlier how Gideon begins to talk of himself so much. Pride is rising in his heart. Now the Midianites are on the run. Gideon sends word ahead of them to the tribe of Ephraim to capture Midian and to cut them off from crossing the Jordan. Ephraim does this in part. They capture two of the four kings, Oreb and Zeb, whose names mean wolf and raven. Appropriate names considering who the Midianites were at this time, those who consumed the land and seed and ravaged the land. Ephraim beheads the kings and brings them their heads to Gideon. When Ephraim brings the heads of the wolf and the raven, they reprimand Gideon for not inviting them to help in the first assault on Midian. It's interesting to see their bitterness because they could have fought Midian on their own previously, but Gideon showed tact, saying, Who am I compared to you? For you have captured these kings. Diffusing a bitter friend and fellow tribe, Gideon showed tact, but we're seeing a trend in Ephraim that will end in disaster later in a following generation. Next, Gideon continued the pursuit across the Jordan into the area of the tribe of Gad and the city of Sokoth. At Sokoth, Gideon stops and asks the city to feed his men. They refuse, and Gideon in anger tells them when he takes down the Midianites, he will punish the town by whipping the leaders of the town with thorns of the wilderness. A similar issue occurs when Gideon stops at a further city called Penuel. Interesting here that the two locations are where Jacob stopped when he came to Israel, and Penuel was the place where he wrestled with God. He wrestled for the blessing of God, and this is the place where Gideon begins to stumble, exhausted from pursuit and worried from battle. This is the place where his lack of character truly begins to plague him. In the case of Penuel, he says that he will tear down their tower since they refused to assist his men. Gideon would catch up with the two remaining kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, whose names mean lack of protection. He would go on to destroy the rest of their army in a surprise flank attack, and the last two kings would be captured. Interesting, it was five kings of Midian that Phinehas killed a long time back in the time of Moses. Now four kings of Midian by Gideon and his army will be killed. He would go to a considerable effort to bring back these kings to Sukkoth to show them and to teach them a lesson by showing them the two captured kings. Then he took the elders of the town of Sukkoth and punished them with the thorns of the wilderness. Next, he tore down the tower of Penuel. 
He killed Zeba and Zamuna, and it says he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Now the glory of Gideon fades fairly fast at this point. I mean, very fast. The great victories are over. And now it gets weird. And quite frankly, it gets pretty sad for Gideon. Here's the account of the rest of his life. Judges 8.22 The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was a custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pennants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Quite sad, isn't it? Our hero humbly refuses to be king, but allows an ephod that could only be built for a Levite to be built in his honor, and then Israel begins to worship it. Now we can see power goes to his head, now as well, with his polygamy and disastrous concubine relationship. And let's note here too that Gideon, he really starts to set a trend for Israel at this point by having many, many wives. We're not talking like a wife or two. We're talking many, many wives and many, many children. Judges eight twenty-eight. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jerob Baal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abahimelech. In the next episode, we'll cover what happens to Israel after the 40 years of countrywide peace and the disorder that occurs due to his relationship with his concubine and his son, whose name is Abahimelech, which means, My father is king. To conclude this episode... I have to remind the listeners of Hebrews 11 and that Gideon is a hero of the faith and God used him mightily. But I have to also remember that all scripture is given for our admonition and learning. No doubt God did wonders in Gideon's life. And let's recap Gideon. He had doubt, he had testing, but his early life was so full of relationship, followed by wonders and miracles of battle. God put him on like a glove and overwhelmed Israel's enemies, and he rallied the country, and in the end, he gave in to pride. While maintaining moderate humility, he still allowed an ephod to be built and worshipped, and he surrendered to polygamy and self-indulgence, all while he still maintained the peace for his country. He is such a man, I mean it, when I say he was a man full of good and bad. But I'd like to suggest his errors were due to his lack of character. We will see God seems to pick the later judges 
just to show his omnipotence, that he could use anyone, I mean anyone, to fulfill his purpose. What Gideon lacked was character, the smelting, the hard times of character lessons. What he didn't learn was all the heartfelt lessons and character of Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Instant success without the fire leads to long-term disaster. What Gideon lacked was what Moses and David learned in the wilderness. Gideon lacked the season of character building, which is the season of isolation when a person learns the values of meekness and humility. When God alone is your teacher, when we meet him in his word, when fruit is not abundant, but we understand our value in Christ. When the roots go deep. And it is this character that makes and helps to sustain us when seasons come of success and growth of influence and favor. Now bringing perspective back to the account of Gideon and stepping back from Gideon's flaws, God loves to celebrate our victories. Just like a father loves to celebrate his child's victories, it's a loving father who doesn't forget or let his children forget his great works. Around 200 years after the defeat of Midian, and written by the sons of Asaph during the reign of King David, Psalms 83 commemorates the victory over the Midianites and God's power to deliver Israel. We wrap this episode up with Psalms 83. O God, do not remain silent. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not stand aloof, O God. See how your enemies growl, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, so that Israel's name is remembered no more. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites and Moab and the Hegrites, Biblos, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, with the people of Tyre. Even Assyria has joined them to reinforce Lot's descendants. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like dung on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zomuna, who said, Let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. Make them like tumbleweed, my God, like shaft before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, or a flame sets the mountains ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest, and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so they may seek your name. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the Most High over all the earth. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss the treachery of Ammahimelech, the son of Gideon. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com.